0: This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is The Age of Jihad, Islamic State and the Great War for the Middle East by Patrick Coburn. The Age of Jihad charts the turmoil of today's Middle East and the devastating role the West has played in the region from 2001 to the present. Beginning with the U.S.-led invasion of Afghanistan, Coburn explores the vast geographical struggle that is the Sunni-Shia conflict, a clash that shapes the war on terror, Western military interventions, the evolution of insurgency, the civil wars in Yemen, Libya, and Syria, the Arab Spring, the fall of regional dictators, and the rise of Islamic State. As Coburn shows in arresting detail, Islamic State did not explode into existence in Syria in the wake of the Arab Spring, as conventional wisdom would have it. The organization gestated over several years in occupied Iraq before growing to the point where it could threaten the stability of the whole region. Coburn was the first Western journalist to warn of the dangers posed by Islamic State. His originality and breadth of vision make the Age of Jihad the most in-depth analysis of the regional crisis in the Middle East to date. The Age of Jihad Islamic State and the Great War for the Middle East by Patrick Coburn. Out now from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. There are few questions for which answers are so urgently needed than that of why the American labor movement has been steadily destroyed since the 1970s. Unions have delivered workers decent wages, access to health care, and a secure retirement. And they have been a key force in narrowing, if far from eliminating, the obscene wealth divide that has always defined this country's political economy. Mass unionization which took root amongst the strike waves and political reforms of the New Deal era, however, was for decades limited by exclusionary measures that women, black people, and many others who were not white men faced in the labor market. As my guest Lane Wyndham writes in her new book, Knocking on Labor's Door, Union Organizing in the 1970s and the Roots of a New Economic Divide, The civil rights and feminist victories of the 1960s finally opened the New Deal promise of good unionized jobs to women and people of color. The result is a story about American labor in the 1970s, a story about workers in a decade of economic crisis that defies conventional wisdom. Young people, white men and black men and women, Wyndham writes, entered jobs that had once been reserved for white men in huge numbers and they sought to form unions in a fight to make the promise those jobs held real. From shipyard workers in Newport News to secretaries in Boston, a radically diversified labor movement took on the boss. Sometimes they succeeded, but ultimately they often failed. Beginning in the late 1970s, unions and the working class they represented spun into sharp decline. But Wyndham argues that the central reason why is not to be found amongst workers— but rather amongst bosses who organized with incredible tenacity to crush unions. Unions whose wages and benefits they believe put them at a disadvantage amidst the rise of brutal global competition in a country where much of the social safety net was privatized, secured as part of collective bargaining agreements. Before we get started, as always, if you depend on this show for a regular dose of in-depth leftist analysis— Support us with your money at patreon.com slash the dig. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. We pay well nothing, and so depend on your voluntary contributions. Okay, here's Lane Windham, Associate Director of Georgetown University's Kalmanovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor, and Co-Director of Will Empower, that's Women Innovating Labor Leadership, a joint project with Rutgers University. Before earning a doctorate in U.S. history, Wyndham spent nearly 20 years in the labor movement as an organizer and communicator. Lane Wyndham, welcome to The Dig.
1: Hi. Happy to be here.
0: I want to set the table by asking you to lay out the historical debate that you're jumping into— Your book is framed as a response to a complication of or maybe more of a retort to conventional stories about organized labor in the 1970s. What is that conventional story and why do you argue that it's wrong?
1: So I'll start by just saying, uh, you know, my main argument here is that the 1970s were a decade of enormous working class activism and promise. That activism was driven in large part by women and people of color. They're at the center of my story. They drove what really was an unseen wave of union organizing in the private sector. And scholars and journalists have generally been very blind to that wave, the standard narrative that I'm interacting with um, is that unions began to lose influence and in members in the 1970s for a number of reasons. They became um, bureaucratized in a kind of business unionism. They no longer organized. Workers became more individualistic and turned away from the collectivity of unions, Unions, uh, you know, were not parts of the rights revolutions of the '60s and '70s, and so lost this opportunity to change and to grow. But um, rather,
0: like the uh, reaction, the hard hat reaction against that revolution, in a sense,
1: right? So the so that's right, and so you see that, for instance, uh, featured prominently in Jeff Cowie's book, *The um, Staying Alive: The Last Days of the Working Class*. In many ways, this. The historians have been blind to the 1970s working class vitality because they've focused really on this one thin slice of the working class, unionized white men. And that leads them to tell what is heavily a story of backlash and defeat. That's the story we have of the working class in the 1970s. But I tell a different story. So in my story, the 70s are the first days, not the last days, the first days of a newly diversified, reshaped re-energized working class. And really, uh, in many ways, the 1970s working class, this uh, reshaped working class, is the roots of today's working class. Um, And I would be happy to talk more about how I understand today's working class, uh, too. I ask readers to broaden their focus uh, to the women, to the people of color who did not have unions, right? They were outside the system, but they were trying to get in, Um, they had long been part of the working class, of course, through their neighborhoods, their communities, through their jobs, they had worked. But what was new in the 70s was that they had access to the kinds of jobs that are at the core of our economy, so the best jobs, really. And they got those jo- access following the 1964 Civil Rights Act. So they, as they poured into the workplaces in the 1970s, they didn't just want a job, they wanted a really good job. So they began to demand unions and they drove a new wave of private sector union organizing efforts. Not only that, but the rights consciousness of the civil and women's rights movement inspired their activism. It really fed their energy. Um, So, you know, the historians who talk about declension, a lot of times they focus on the percentage of the workforce that had a union or sometimes they focus on the number of workers who are winning union elections, and both of those figures dropped in this decade. I did something different, and that's what allows me to tell a different story. I didn't just look at the people who won, I looked at all the workers who are trying to form unions. So I looked at the records of the National Labor Relations Board, the NL- NLRB, um, and looked at the workers who are coming to election, who were signing up for. who are voting in the union elections. Once you do that, you see that the number of workers trying to form unions is steady during the 1950s, the 1960s, really the heyday of labor, all the way through the entire 1970s. Despite a huge increase in employer resistance to organizing in that decade, there is no decline in union organizing. In fact, the opposite is true. Half a million workers a year are trying to form unions in the 70s. If you combine these workers in the private sector, with the nearly 3 million public sector workers forming unions in this decade, then it's clear that this is a moment of working class activism. Now, I should say historians have been more clear that there was lots of organizing in the public sector among women and people of color. They have not at all focused on this in the private sector. And so what I discovered is that, you know, it's basically workers and the unions were organizing and they, and they did want unions. What did decline, though, right, is workers' ability to win the union elections. Um, and we can talk more about what employers did. But basically, they hit this crisis of profit in the 70s. And so they ramped up their resistance to workers' union organizing. And they used weak labor law to effectively quash this whole new wave of private sector union organizing Um so as you can see, that that is a very different tale, a different explanation than, than what is standard.
0: And it also seems like you're pushing back against a standard explanation for this moment that's a generational explanation, which is that baby boomers, as you write, are often characterized in the 70s as being individualistic and disillusioned and less likely to back unions when... Polling at the time actually showed that young workers were more pro-union. And so millennials, I guess, aren't the first generation to be subjected to lazy stereotypes.
1: <laughs> it's true. I, I haven't. You're right. I haven't talked about that here, which is that the people who were organizing, they were women and people of color. They were also young. Um You know, by 1976, nearly half of the nation's workforce is under the age of 35. And the polling shows that young workers were more open to unions than older workers. And I found that not only through national polling, but I also found it when I dug into my case studies that time after time, the young workers were the ones who were really pushing. And again, I think that they were building in a lot from the movements of the time, from the building from civil rights and the women's rights movements.
0: And also the anti war movement, you're right.
1: Well, the Vietnam War comes in in a couple ways. On one hand, people who had fought in the Vietnam War, when they came back, they were willing to stand up in their workplaces and to organize. So, um, you know, that was uh, especially true of a lot of black Vietnam vets who, when they came back, they decided they were going to organize their workplaces. But it's also true that you had uh, middle-class anti-war activists from the new left who then developed into labor activists, often getting manufacturing jobs and then trying to organize them. So the Vietnam War had had sort of a dual impact on this tale that I'm telling about the organizing in the 70s.
0: It seems like one of the things you might be referring to in the, the latter part of what you were just describing is the Socialist Workers' Party's turn towards industries where you had a lot of... Um, Marxist activists moving into all kinds of working class jobs and really engaging with with union politics for the long haul, and which is something that I I encountered you know a decade ago when I was working as an activist in in Portland um, and really got to know some of these people. We're like, oh wow, these people got involved in the in the seventies in this very explicitly political way and have spent their lives um, in these working class jobs and in in the union.
1: Absolutely. And that wasn't true, I think, in the North or West. It was also true in the South, which I don't think a lot of people realize uh, that you had, um, you know, anti-war activists who uh, began to organize there, too. So absolutely.
0: Before we move on, I think we need to talk a bit about the, the catalytic event for much of what your book is about, which is the economic crisis that hits in the 1970s. And the rise of intense global competition for American companies, um, which leads to this just vicious organized business reaction that so yeah. much of your book is about. It was not a cyclical yeah. crisis, you write, but rather, quote, the birth of a new economic divide. Can you explain what happened in terms of the the economy?
1: Sure. I'd be happy to. So uh, most historians, including myself, agree that the 1970s were these pivotal years that really set the stage for workers' present crisis. These are the beginnings of our days. <laughs> um, the wages, workers' wages stopped rising along with producti- productivity, and working people just never shared in the later recoveries. There are a number of things going on uh, at this time. You know, um, in some ways, the 1960s, especially the early 1960s, was sort of the heyday of labor. That was when more than three quarters of manufacturing plants were covered by collective bargaining agreements, for instance. But between 1965 and really 1973, um, you start to have a change where the rate of profit for private business starts to fall it fell by 29%. Among manufacturers, it fell even faster. U.S. business just really hadn't had as much global competition following World War II because Germany and Japan had been flattened by the war. Well, they're starting to um, come back and give more competition. Not only that, but there are advances in shipping and distribution, which basically are allowing companies all over the globe to compete. So you have the new giant container ships, increasing cargo capacity, for instance. Um and, you know, eventually you even have the scanners that are starting to later in the seventies where they're starting to scan everything uh, and a whole new way of getting information out. Um, and so uh meanwhile, during the 70s and early 80s, you start to have this shift away from manufacturing and towards finance, right? Finance and shareholder value are becoming more important than long-term workforce development or research. Um, and of course, there's uh, some external economic shocks, right? There's the 1974-75 recession with huge inflation, um, and that's very important. So business reacts in a number of ways uh, to basically to try to get a foothold within this rapidly changing economy. And labor costs is something that they can control a lot better than they can control global competition, right? So they start to cut costs.
0: A big part of it, it wasn't just that this crisis happened, but a big part of your analysis of this period is that the American post-World War II social welfare system was, was so significantly privatized, meaning that things like retirement security and health insurance were by and large provided not by government as they would be in a social democracy, but were secured by unions through employer from employers through collective bargaining agreements, meaning that the social welfare system was not only a profoundly uneven and unequal one. That excluded all sorts of people, particularly women and people of color, but that at this moment of crisis, when they're looking at cutting costs, that they're saddled with a competitive disadvantage, and a way to get rid of that is to to get rid of unions.
1: Right, that's exactly right. And so um, I said, let me just talk for a minute about social welfare, and then I'll sort of uh, circle back to the discussion about employers. Um, So you know, when I was writing this book, I. there are two parts to the book. The first part is national. The second part is sort of the case studies. And I thought about starting the book with a chapter on workers. I thought about starting out on a chapter on employers. And I didn't. I started it with a chapter on social welfare. And it's exactly for what you're describing, which is that I had to show why workers, why it was so important for them to have a union and why employers fought so hard to keep workers, more workers from entering that system. And that gets us to a discussion of unions role as central to the U.S.'s employer based basically their social welfare state. So, and you know, if you, if you were a German or British working person, you wouldn't have to go through a union to get really good healthcare or retirement. You would just get that as a matter of citizenship, right? You wouldn't even have it as part of your employer. But in the US, we developed, a, after World War II, we developed a social welfare system that relies on employers. Lots of historians have written about this, Jennifer Klein, Jacob Hapker, et cetera. But we never said uh, to employers, okay, you, you're gonna provide these social benefits. We're gonna turn to you, not the state for that. But we never said to them, you have to do that. We never required it of them. So how did we ensure that individual corporations would step up and fulfill their social welfare role? Well, we provided some carrots, like tax breaks for employer-provided health care. But we also relied on a big stick, which was firm-level collective bargaining. We tend to think of collective bargaining as something that happens between employers and workers, but really the state's role is simple, is central employers didn't bargain out of goodwill right they did so because they're required to bargain if their workers at their workplace vote for a union so in this country unions and collective bargaining do the kind of redistribution and social safety network that governments do elsewhere well how are workers going to access that redistribution there's three ways one they can organize a new union right two they can get a job where workers have already voted in a union, or the, three, they can get a job where the employer matches the wages and benefits, the social welfare, and a company where the workers have already voted for a union. And that used to be more common than it is today.
0: Because of union threat, um, right. they because of the even union even give, give even more than a unionized shop might give just to keep the union out.
1: That's right. And that used to be, uh, that was very central to the 20th century, mid-20th century economy, this, this uh, union threat issue. So either way, at some point in time, some group of workers had to go through the organizing process. And so organizing becomes this very narrow door through which working people can access our nation's most robust social welfare state. Well, what did employers do, right? Basically, employers, uh, when they hit this crisis of profit, they want it out of their social welfare obligations. Well, what's the best way to get out of those social welfare obligations? What is the one entity in our society that can force you to play that role? Not the government. The government never said you had to play that role. All the government said is if your workers vote for a union, then you have to play the social welfare role. Well, then just don't let the workers form a union right? And so they attacked labor, the entity that was responsible for securing the wages and the benefits from the employers within this social welfare state. Um, And because these American corporations, remember, had to compete against companies in countries in which the social welfare costs were covered by the government rather than by the employers. Um, And so uh, they began to unravel uh, Really, the whole way that they engage in in social welfare, now, let me be clear union the employers do more than just attack unions or union organizing. They try to change the whole employment relationship, right? So this is the beginnings of the times when we have temp workers. You have more part-time workers. Uh, They are basically uh, the beginnings of of what David Weil calls the fissured workplace, right? So they begin to push down labor standards and wages. But making sure that workers can't enter into this relationship anymore through organizing, that's, that's one of the first steps and one of the key steps. I should also be clear that business also became far more politically active in this decade. This is, of course the beginnings of the business roundtable. The business a lot of their packs are formed during this time, um, and that's part and parcel of what employers are doing as well
0: and the business roundtable actually forms out of a study group or consortium of sorts of representatives of major businesses who are strategizing on how to get rid of union. So the anti-labor movement on business's behalf that the anti-labor reaction is really the cornerstone of this broader organized business lobby that we that we uh, have to deal with today.
1: Really started in uh 1965 is the beginnings of it. Uh so well before the Powell memo. <laughs> Um, you see that employers... If you could pause uh, and explain what that
0: is, because that's seen as this uh, very pivotal moment.
1: (laughs) So you have in the early 70s the Powell memo uh, from... This is a memo from... He's not Supreme Court justice yet, but he puts out a memo to business...
0: Lewis Powell.
1: Lewis Powell. He puts out a, a memo to business, basically saying we have a cultural there's a cultural moment a cultural change and we have to get active in order to defend ourselves you know against the student activism the worker activism um etc the barbarians Uh, are at the
0: gates and businesses just sitting there let get letting it letting ralph nader kick its ass
1: yeah yeah and of course he later uh is on the supreme court but um this is well before this what i'm describing is um in, in, starting in 1965, a uh, number of leaders of the nation's largest corporations, GE, Ford, U.S. Steel, start something called the Labor Law Reform Group, uh, and it is one of the precursors to the business roundtable. Um, and there are leaders like Douglas Souter of the American Smelting and Refining Corporation, Virgil Day of GE, Fred Atkinson of Macy they bring in a group of nine thought leaders from major corporations, and then they hire lawyers. And basically, they go through labor law line by line and decide how they want to change it in business's favor. And they take this to Congress, and they try to change the law. Ultimately, they are unsuccessful because even um, by this time we're, uh, you know, 1960. Eight sixty nine. even under Nixon, labor is, is remains strong. Um, so by the early 1970s, they no longer are trying to change labor law. Uh, instead, they shift gear. They start to bend and break labor law so much that it labor law increasingly becomes meaningless to workers. Um, so by the end of the decade, they no longer want to change the law. They're happy with the law. They actually are defending the status quo. Because they have so, they have uh, changed the playing field so much by bending and breaking the law, essentially.
0: And you write that there are three key developments in terms of businesses' new war on unions. One is that employers become more willing to violate labor law. I guess once they find out, uh, especially under conservative NLRBs, that there's no real consequence. Two, that anti-union sentiment spreads to core industries, whereas I guess prior to that, it was more of a small and medium-sized business thing to be really hostile unions, whereas like the big big automakers, et cetera, had kind of become accommodated to this, to this post-war compromise. And then three, there's the rise of this large anti-union consultant industry, which really didn't exist before.
1: So that's a really good summary. Uh, exactly of the way that employers increased their resistance um, you know the f- first thing they did is they the employers became far more willing to bend uh, and break the law um, they uh, there were far more what we call unfair labor practice charges which is basically incidents where the employers break the law um, the unfair labor pra- practice charges against the employers doubled doubled in the 1970s. And the lawbreaking was really effective. Workers used to win roughly 80% of union elections in the 1940s. By the late 70s, they were winning less than half. Um, so you mentioned the second thing is that there was more resistance in the core of the economy. And that's, that's true. It was unionized employers at the core of the economy, companies like GM, U.S. Steel, Goodrich, who began to viciously fight those workers who their workers who didn't already have unions, they fought their efforts. They were not going to let more people in. So, like you know, the Goldwater,
0: I, the Goldwater voting uh, president of like a two hundred person uh, small, you know, small to mid sized factory maybe was always anti union. But these big firms had accommodated themselves. For, yeah, for I mean,
1: you know, they had GM, U.S. Steel, Goodrich. Certainly they had fought at various times, including, in, uh, you know, in the South. But what what's happening is that they're beginning to move more and more into the South, right? And they are not going to make sure – they're going to make sure that these workers aren't able to enter really this most secure level of our – social welfare state, which is dependent on the employer, they're not going to let them in. So how I got to this is I looked at these, what we call unfair labor practices. I looked at them by sector and you would think, gosh, service and retail, that's not very union. It would probably be highest there. But in fact, the there was um, a higher percentage in manufacturing, uh, and the employer lawbreaking was was deeper within manufacturing, even though that was the most highly unionized sector. Um, and so that was uh, that was certainly a surprise to me. It's not what I expected to find. The third thing, as you mentioned, that happened is that employers began to rely much more heavily on union busters, um, and you know, a lot of them uh, basically received their training at universities, which began to teach that good business practices involved resisting union organizing. These consultants are very clear that that women and people of color want unions and that they are organizing. Historians maybe have not been so clear that women and people (laughs) of color were unionizing, but the consultants and and the business people, they knew that that was true.
0: They correctly saw women and people of color as the labor threat, the labor militant labor threat that they were.
1: (laughs) That's right. And so they used this diverse workforce to gin up business. One anti-union consultant offered a, quote, union vulnerability audit in which a company could determine if it was at risk. Uh, according to how many women, people of color, et cetera, um, it had in it in its in its workforce. Um, you and there know, was also a
0: particularly uh dis virulently bigoted, racist, um, anti eleven ninety nine video that, that you were. Well that's to. right.
1: You some of your listeners may remember a book called Confessions of a Union Buster. It's by this guy, Martin J. Levitt. Uh, who was a a union buster. He was part of 3M, which was one of the main uh, firms. And he wrote a book and sort of told all. And according to him, uh, they would show a video uh, to supervisors. And it featured Local 1199, a film about the Charleston, South Carolina hospital campaign. And it featured um, black women. And they showed it uh, and the and the women were saying, you know, that just give me eleven ninety nine. I want to be part of the union. And the, you know, Levitt says we didn't even say anything. We didn't have to. We knew that we would tap their own racism and sexism, and that showing this video would be enough to scare them basically into fighting the union.
0: To white male workers or to the bosses? Yes.
1: To, to, well, to the it was to the supervisors. Yeah, so it was when yeah. they are training supervisors most of whom were white males that's right
0: and th- and this was part of the strategy a key part of this nascent profession um, of anti-union consultants is the enlistment of frontline supervisors as the frontline in the anti-union campaign and sort of breaking their allegiance with the workers who they who they who they who, who they really are like working side by side with in many cases
1: yeah this Supervisors, you know, they have an interest. They first of all, they're working side by side with these workers. Also, the supervisors, when the workers get a raise, the supervisors get a raise, right? Because you got to pay your supervisors more than you do your workers. They're probably only making a little bit more than they are anyway. So they'll get a raise too. So a lot of times they were really supportive. Um I I talked to one guy who was a supervisor at the Woodward and Lothrop department store on the on the loading dock, and he uh, was a supervisor who's basically an African-American man who basically said, you know, they would have balled me out if they knew that I was supporting these workers. But I actually supported the union secretly and, you know, uh, sort of under the radar and did everything I could to help them because in the end it would help me. <laughs> so what the what the what the consultants know this, and so they have to basically be very clear to the supervisors that, uh While you know it is illegal for us to fire someone who one of the rank and file workers who's supporting the union, it is not illegal for us to fire you. <laughs> they absolutely are in their their right to basically um fire a supervisor if they are supportive of the union uh and they are very clear that they would do that
0: and one other uh, question on this uh rise of of business consultants you mentioned that Business schools become real key propagators of anti-union knowledge and, and strategy, and I'm wondering why that is. And one reason you mentioned, but one reason you mentioned that it's so effective is because there's many more many more managers are going to business school. At this time, than they ever had before. There's like a professionalization of of management or something taking place.
1: That's right. So by the 70s, U.S. business managers are far more likely to go to business school uh, than in previous decades. It used to be that you would become a manager after you worked your way up on the shop floor right but there's this shift to this professionalization where you go to you go to business school and not only that but managers in the US are far more likely to go to business school than in other industrialized nations it's a US huh. it's a US phenomena so the business schools in the 70s began to teach students that unions you know that that they that they part of their job is to fight them that a good manager is one who can keep the unions out it's not about how do you Work with the union. How do you negotiate? There's some of that, but a lot of it is how this is an unnecessary expense, and they need to be able to to keep it out. Um, and, you know, so you know, one guy, uh, John Kilgore, for instance, who is at California State, uh, basically says uh, he built a whole union risk index, which rated each state by how probable it was that its workers would form a union there. And, and he actually, uh, in his book, even suggests capital flight. You know, another way of avoiding the unions is to leave the country altogether. And that's basically the kind of thing that they were starting, starting to teach in the 70s. I'm Naomi Klein. You're listening to The Dig as well you should be, and you can support them on Patreon.com.
0: This episode of The Dig is also brought to you by the University of California Press, which is without question one of the best university presses out there. One title you might like is Gaza, an Inquest into its Martyrdom by Norman Finkelstein. The Gaza Strip is among the most densely populated places in the world. More than two-thirds of its inhabitants are refugees, and more than half are under 18 years of age. Since 2004, Israel has launched eight devastating operations against Gaza's largely defenseless population. Thousands have perished, and tens of thousands have been left homeless. In the meantime, Israel has subjected Gaza to a merciless, illegal blockade. What has befallen Gaza is a man-made humanitarian disaster. Based on scores of human rights reports, Norman G. Finkelstein's new book presents a meticulously researched inquest into Gaza's martyrdom. He shows that although Israel has justified its assaults in the name of self-defense, in fact, these actions constituted flagrant violations of international law. But Finkelstein also documents that the guardians of international law, from Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch to the UN Human Rights Council, ultimately failed Gaza. One of his most disturbing conclusions is that, after Judge Richard Goldstone's humiliating retraction of his UN report, human rights organization succumbed to the Israeli juggernaut. Finkelstein's magnum opus is both a monument to Gaza's martyrs and an act of resistance against the forgetfulness of history. Gaza, an inquest into its martyrdom, by Norman Finkelstein. Out now from University of California Press. So we've talked uh, a bit about the business reaction to the labor movement of the 70s and now i want to ask you some about that 70s labor movement beneath the falling statistics uh around union membership um you dig under that and find this groundswell of worker organizing efforts led by women young people people of color and as you mentioned this was this moment where all these people who had been denied access to huge swaths of the workforce the the the, the most remunerative best parts of the working class job market, were ready to use the victories won from the civil rights movement as a platform from which to seize the promise of the New Deal that had been in such large part restricted to white men. And I want to read from a particular passage here. The civil and women's rights movements had changed the way working class people, including some white men, understood their relationship to their employers. If the longstanding mores surrounding race and gender at work would crumble, then why should working people put up with disrespect, low pay, and shoddy benefits on the job? This was this, this time where there was really this raised state of class consciousness and militancy, which is just totally contrary to this image of the me generation that we typically have of, of the 70s. Could you talk before we get into the specific organizing campaigns that you profile, talk a little bit about just kind of the, 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 the ferment in in the working class at this moment?
1: So yeah, this this is a moment of, as I say, working class activism and uh, rebellion. Now there's lots of ways that the working class was active, right? You also, there's lots of strikes and that's true all the way through the decade. Um, you know, anywhere from the illegal postal strike at the beginning of the decade until minor strikes at the end of the decade. Um, you know, there's lots of Tumult and organizing, even within unions, as workers are demanding more de- democracy uh, and uh, representation within their unions. My book, of course, focuses on the organizing piece of this. Um, and absolutely, the ideas of the civil rights movement, the women's movement, uh, and the anti war movement to some extent uh, basically uh, fuel these workers' uh, union fires. It, what I'm saying is different than a lot of historians say that there was like a tension between civil and labor rights and that people chose the individuality of civil rights over the collectivity of labor. Um,
0: Which is sort of a precursor to the least helpful debates over identity politics that right, continue right. to pervade the it, left today.
1: <laughs> you know, and the people who argue that tend to use a legal lens and maybe it works there more, but I, when I I write from the ground, right, I interview the workers and from their level, they did not find a conflict. They used whatever tools they could in order to win more workplace power. Uh, So they used the older laws from the New Deal, like the National Labor Relations Act in tandem with the 1964 Civil Rights Act, right? So of course, uh, for a long time, as you mentioned, women and people of color had long been excluded essentially from the new deal, right? You, uh, lots of them held the kinds of jobs that weren't covered like, um, domestic work or agricultural work. Um, and so, uh, you know, they, they weren't even eligible for many of the new deals programs, including the national labor relations act and unionization. Um, but, what you see in the 1970s as they are coming into these jobs it's it's like finally they have the moment when it, they can access the full promise of the new deal and they're going for it right they're organizing they're like pushing really hard and uh you know so there's this this whole whole wave um so, you know women, for instance, are key in this new wave of organizing There's twelve million more women working by the end of the decade in the nineteen seventies um, and many join unions in nineteen sixty only eighteen percent of union members are women by nineteen eighty four that figure was thirty four percent right um, and yeah, a big change and the board records, they don't reveal gender. Like they don't, there's no way to know the person's gender who's voting. So what I did is I actually broke out.
0: That would be really great for researchers order. though if that did exist. <laughs> <laughs> it would be, but they don't, they don't give you that. It's not like an exit poll or a, you know. There are no cross so tabs. I, yeah.
1: <laughs> no, no cross tabs. So I, what I did is I said, okay, well, where, I know where women were working. They were working in retail and service, for instance. So I broke out those sectors to look at and and it turns out that there was lots more organizing, nearly double the rate of organizing and service and retail in the nineteen seventies than there had been in the sixties. So there's tons of organizing among women. Black workers are by far the most likely workers to say that they wanted a union, a full seventy percent of African American blue collar workers said they'd form a union if given a chance. Um you know, so there's the there's lots of organizing in that population. Southern workers also organized. Forty-four um, percent of of board voters in the 1970s are in southern or sunbelt states. That's higher than in the 1960s. You know, that's that's a lot.
0: And that's really propelled you, right? In something that I didn't know. I, I when I think about return black migration to the south, I think of, you know, articles I've read recently about a lot of black folks from like New York moving to. Atlanta for a variety of different reasons like these days but you you write that there's really a return migration at that point in the 70s of a lot of black workers who've learned about you and had experience with unions in the north and are coming into these southern workplaces and becoming decisive and militant voices
1: in organizing Absolutely. Campaigns. In fact, when I start chapter too with as the story of Henry Davison from uh, Monroe Louisiana he had grown up there he you know, couldn't get a decent job as a black man he moved up north got a job uh at a GM factory uh and made a good wage but then once he started having kids he wanted to raise them around his family his extended family so they moved back down and it turns out that GM is just starting a, a factory in Monroe so he gets a job and he organizes it right because he knows <laughs> he's had this experience of working in a unionized plant in Chicago and so he is uh absolutely you know in the and they success they successfully organized that that GM plant um you know that's a story you just don't hear very often uh and and the way we talk about the seventies and the way we talk about labor, we tend to have a lot more focus about uh white men so i let me just take a moment to talk about white men who you know who are not my who are not the center of my focus here um but I think that um, while many white men do fit the the sort of hard-hatted, silent majority—that is—that was a real uh, thing. It was never my intent to overturn uh, the hard-hatted, silent majority. Many men, white men especially, were racist, were sexist, as were some of the unions they headed. Like um, the
0: Cowie, the Cowie thesis has some truth if it's if it's not stated as a universal truth about the 1970s. Is that fair? yeah,
1: yeah, definitely. And you know, my story stands alongside that. Right. I mean, that is is definitely true. And I tell the stories of, you know, white racist journeymen who hassled uh, the iron workers who worked for them, for instance. Um, uh, However, (laughs) I think that uh, if you were to write a book that was about uh, white men and union organizing, that we still don't have the whole story. I don't think that Jefferson Cowie tells that. I think that uh, I don't do a story on white men and union organizing. They're in there. They're in my story, but they're not the center of my focus. If someone were to write a story that focused on their union organizing efforts, I'm not convinced that we have the whole story yet. So, for instance, In my story, sometimes white workers took inspiration from Black workers' organizing spirit, and they gained new courage to try to unionize in Southern workplaces. Like I have in textiles at the Duke University Hospital, I have examples of white workers who are following the Black workers to organize. At the Woodward and Lothrop Department store, you know, I interviewed a young white man uh, who quickly joined uh, the women and the people of color who are organizing there saying, I didn't see any reason not to support it. I think that there is a more complex and rich story about white men's union organizing efforts that is still needs to be told Um, because certainly without a union, white men too are left without the benefits of the robust social welfare system, right? Collective bargaining and economic security is a powerful motivator And I suspect that further study would reveal that in organizing campaigns, sometimes that desire for security trumped uh, white men's racism and sexism, but certainly not always. And Um,
0: even even in the South, as the populace in their early, early and better moments um, saw very clearly.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's a good example. That's a good connection. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Well, one workplace that I think was pretty diverse, I don't recall the demographics off the top of my head, but that 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 organized in a campaign that was led by women and people of color, black workers in particular, was the Steelworkers organizing campaign at the Newport News Shipbuilding and Dry Dock Company in Virginia. And this is a really interesting case. And you suggest that studying this labor triumph can help us better, a complicated triumph, not without a lot of defeat involved as well and and, uh, pay and and suffering, can help us better understand a period that's known for working class defeat. And I think your argument is that because this company depended on government military contracts, they had less leverage against workers, which, and we don't want, not that we want to make the military industrial complex the model for our, our economy, but it provides a window into what unionization might look like if the U.S. had a more generally pro-worker industrial and trade policy. So there's a lot. I just said a lot there. But first, if you could just like lay out that workplace in the campaign.
1: Newport News Shipyard. It was the first uh, story that I I researched. And it turns out that this was the largest labor board election in the 1970s and the largest labor board election ever in the South. Nineteen thousand workers voted uh, to become part of the United Steelworkers uh, campaign, uh, Steelworkers Union at that shipyard. Um and uh Newport News um I'm still sort of amazed that no historian ever told this story because it is clearly such a historic one. And the workers there, it was a clear case of how the workers used both labor and civil rights in order to win more power. There were two big conciliation agreements, one in 1967 and one in 1970. They were some of the first conciliation agreements with the government around making sure that the, um, That especially black workers had more had ample access to the best kinds of jobs in the shipyard. They're sort of historic cases. But even after the workers had won both of those, they found that there was no entity really there to police them and to make sure that the day to day um, that there was day to day justice. And for that, they still needed a union in order to lift up their wages and benefits.
0: And they had a company union of sorts
1: they did. They had something called the Peninsula Shipbuilders Association. It was a union that had started, um, it was actually there, uh, you know, at the time of the Wagner Act and was one of the first cases where the, uh, basically the union said, hey, this is unfair. This is actually a company union and they challenged it. uh, And the uh, Peninsula Shipbuilders Association basically pulled away from the company and established itself as an independent, quote, independent union. But it was never really independent. They didn't hold meetings. They didn't have the workers didn't vote on on contracts. It was it was really um, an organization that was uh, very, um, you know, controlled by the controlled by the company. That said. Some of the same workers who started the, the steelworkers drive, black workers, were involved in the PSA and this em, employer driven union because for them, having some union was better than no union, right? And so they actually learned, they had an experience where they learned what it was like to have a union contract um, and how that would function. And there's some and, interesting and then, historical
0: precedent for this because I'm just rereading poor people's movements now for uh, an upcoming interview with Francis Fox Piven, and yeah. I believe that some of the 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 CIO early CIO struggles also came from people who had been in
1: that's right in company unions. Yeah, meatpackers is a, a very good example. Uh, Rick Halpern's book, The Velvet Glove, I forget, or maybe it's an essay. Uh, yes, it, it's uh, very much so that workers when they've had an experience with and it was true in my my Woodward and Lothrop case too. There also was a company dominated union there. The workers uh had an experience of having a union and that helped pave the way, especially in these uh in the South, where there weren't a lot of other experiences, it paved the way for them to build uh, a more robust union. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Well anyway, so Anyhow. <laughs> uh so Newport News so 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 you raised this question. Well, okay, so Newport News um was it an exception, right? After all this is a navy contractor. These ships have to be built in the US. If if we're telling a story of the rise of the global economy in the 1970s, maybe these workers are totally protected. Um and you know, in fact, I do find I I um interviewed Ray Marshall who was the uh who was president carter's uh secretary of labor and he talked about how he he did actually meet with them and strongly suggest that they settle this you know at that time there was a big strike with the workers after they won their union election they couldn't get a contract so they had a big militant strike that lasted for 82 days he sat down with the company and and you know pushed them basically to settle and so to you see that the fact that it was a government contractor probably did have an influence in these workers being able to win their union. And they do still have a union today at the Newport News Shipyard. In order to kind of get at that question of uh, maybe Newport News was exceptional, maybe these workers felt more free to organize, I looked at Cannon Mills, uh, which is a textile company in Kannapolis, North Carolina, outside Charlotte,
0: the like, the uh, iconic company town named after right. the, the the mill that there and 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 you, you you sketch that out as sort of this opposite situation where unlike Newport News, global competition totally ruled the day there not just that cannon mills had real pressures of competition from globalization, but that they just were not shy at all against about using that pressure against employees against workers
1: absolutely, yeah. So I tell the story of two union elections at Cannon Mills. There's one in 1974 and one in 1985. In 1974, there are far more black workers than there had ever been in, in the textile mill due to pressures and laws from the civil rights movement, right? For a long time, uh, only uh, mostly white workers worked in textile mills. Black men often, if they worked there at all, they worked the most dirty and dusty jobs. Very few black women worked there. This is all changing. By 1974, you have far more uh, black workers in there. And uh, the workers very nearly win a union election in 1974. In fact, most experts say, oh, well, it's just a matter of time. As you get more uh, black workers, more women in there, they're going to get their union in. Well, in 1985, there were more black workers, but the union in 1985 was defeated on a scale of two to one, despite the fact that they had petitioned for election with more than half the workers. So what happened between the time they had petitioned for, with half the workers to the time when the union is defeated two to one? Well, to answer that, I bring in trade policy and globalization, and I basically show how this employer used globalization as a weapon to defeat the workers union organizing effort, right basically threatened that the workers that the plant would shut down that they they would lose their jobs because of um trade policy because of the globalization in the textile industry um, and so uh despite the fact that the union, what was called the amalgamated clothing and textile workers union or act two. This union was actually a partner with the company and textile uh, companies and efforts to pass protective textile trade policy. Nevertheless, they they worked hand in hand. Yep. Still beats them over the head with globalization. And and the workers, you know, the workers kind of they they get the threat. They understand it. It's very clear to them. And so they vote against the union
0: it's an utterly credible threat but ironically they they lose the they vote they vote down the union and right. and the plant closes anyways
1: it does it closes and but not so they vote the union down there are a couple more let's see there's an election in the early 90s there's another they finally win a union election in 1999 but by then the textile industry is really Shutting down and moving out, and within a few years, uh, the the company, which at this time is called Pilotex, finally does uh, shut down. It's not because of the union; it's because of the larger, you know, changes that are happening in the industry. And um, these are.
0: And speaking of that, if you could explain it a little more, it's not just this kind of. There's this general process of, of corporate globalization, going on, but more specifically, there's this shift in in power, in the supply chain, where retailers gain control over textile manufacturers. And that really hurts American textile industry and workers.
1: Yes. So without getting into all the details, uh, making your listeners go deep into the details of trade policy, basically, there's something called the multi-fiber arrangement, starting in 1974, which governs it's a, it's basically a, a table where countries uh, come to the table and say, okay, these are gonna be the quotas that all of us are gonna have on our you know blouses or pants, like they actually break down how many of these items are gonna come out of different countries. And they basically start to, they have sort of a logical way of dealing with the textile and apparel global trade. Um and but then what happens is that you know, as part of the push uh the neoliberal push, this starts to break down and they begin to phase out these various uh quotas. Um and so the union and the companies try very hard to push something push other um legislation that would put in new quotas that are much less of a give and take with other countries. It's just plain quotas, like one is called the Jenkins Bill in nineteen eighty five. Uh and there are there are a number of them through the late eighties. Um
0: and Reagan and and, and but, Reagan is staunchly against them.
1: Right. And not only that, but Reagan the retailers are beginning to have more and more power. There's less power at the manufacturing, more power at the retailers because the retailers, of course, have all, a lot of the information. They are driving the production, and so Reagan puts the uh, CEOs from the from retail onto the um, the multi-fiber arrangement negotiations, uh, and you begin to see that retail starts to drive. Uh, this process rather than than manufacturing. And so what that means is that the trade policy that we get uh, by the 2000s is very much favored towards the retailers and not towards the manufacturers.
0: Yeah, and not to get too much more into the weeds, but I think it is fascinating and very, very important to understand that, that, that there's this period that, um, you know, I'm at age 35, I'm not really old enough to, to remember where manufacturers of textiles are really more driving, like what kind of, what kind of what underwear uh, available in the store might look like, right? And then, um, that's right. the, And then there's this this transformation which we now just take for granted as the status quo, where 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 retail and retailer retail and brands are have this direct relationship to consumers. All of this information you have, um, everything being 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 scanned, allowing them to really. Flip it all to their to their advantage. And that means that they are able to flip trade policy to their advantage and source uh, their the, the the goods that they are designing and ordering from wherever they want, wherever the labor is cheapest.
1: You know, despite the fact that the union had been partners with the manufacturers, uh, it begins to matter less and less. And in fact, the manufacturers start to peel away from they, they had formed their own uh sort of alliance with the unions called uh, F-FACT to fight for some of these quotas, you begin to see that various manufacturers are sort of pulling away from that and cutting their own deals uh, with the retailers because the retailers are starting to have the most power. Meanwhile, the unions' membership numbers are just plummeting, um, and they become weaker and weaker. Mm -hmm.
0: So you then pivot from the declining industrial economy to the ascendant retail economy that is supplanting it. And you tell the story of retail workers at Woodward and Lothrop, a department store chain in the D.C. area, which Washingtonians like myself uh, called Woody's. Tell me about their their victory in this ascendant industry. And also, though, why the promise of unionization in this ascendant industry is ultimately limited by another revolution in the American economy?
1: One of the big surprises in my research is how much organizing was happening uh, in retail. This is something that historians were had long said, oh, well, one of the, one of the mistakes that labor made is it didn't organize in retail. Uh, but in fact, they did. Um, so, the, my, one of my chapters looks at the successful effort by the Woodward and Lothrop department store workers to unionize. These, again, were young workers. Three quarters of them were women. Um, more than a quarter were African American. Um, you know, we've we've learned a lot about how Walmart and a new breed of discounters drove down prices, starting in the '70s. Um, but we haven't known a lot about the workers, right? In fact, many of these workers didn't back down when they faced de-skilling and the gutting of wages and benefits. Um, The number of retail workers triggering union elections was up by 28 percent compared to the 1960s, a rate that was not far behind the rate of employment growth in the 70s in retail, which was 39 percent. So who were these workers? They were workers at Calder, Dillon Companies, Davison's in my hometown in Atlanta, Hex, gimbles they were all trying to form unions. Now, they were not necessarily winning, right? <laughs> but they were definitely trying. So at Woodard and Lothrop, these workers formed a union with the United Food and Commercial Workers. Um, and for many, many years, Woodard and Lothrop was typical uh, of department stores in that they had not hired black workers to work on the floor. Uh, if if they were black workers, they were in uniform, opening doors or perhaps serving in the tea rooms this but they changes. weren't they weren't
0: showing you around the selection of uh suits or luggage no. or, whatever.
1: or ringing you up, ringing your purse up or anything right Th- So starting in the mid-1970s, I mean, sorry, in the mid-1960s, this starts to change. And it's because the NAACP and CORE push and demand that the department stores hire uh, Black workers. And so they start to do that. And so by the 70s, you have far more Black workers, and they uh, begin to organize. What I found at Woodward and Lothrop was that, in general, the workers – liked the company, but the wages and benefits were really, really bad. Um, and so they are very eager to run this campaign. And the, the UFCW runs a very staff heavy campaign. They send in 200 organizers. It's, it's, it's a, it's a big campaign. It's, it's over 7,000 workers, but they send over 200 organizers or, and, um, and sort of volunteers from other unionized stores. They fan out in one day, they fan out over 14 stores and two distribution centers. They sink their watches and a certain time of day, they start at the top and work their way down, passing out handbills and thousands of workers sign cards, uh, in the first, first few days of the campaign. Um, and, so at Woodruff and Lothrop, these workers ended up that they didn't really face as vicious a campaign as maybe what we saw at Cannon Mills. Their employer ran a bit of a milder campaign. Um, the Woodys owners I,
0: were like more yeah, earnest, earnestly paternal, sincerely paternalistic. Well, <laughs> I
1: think it's that I think you know I I I was never able to find somebody you know like a quote the perfect quote to explain why they didn't. They had actually hired. An anti-union attorney, Shaw and Rosenthal, uh, and I found—I actually used that law firm's records, Um, but they didn't—they didn't rely on them during the last days of the campaign. I think partly it was that Woody's had this sort of very refined reputation, and they didn't want to risk that. Yeah, it was the fancier. It was like
0: the fancier uh, chain in DC. Yeah,
1: yeah. So Shaw and Rosenthal. At Hex, for instance, ran a huge anti union campaign that was much more typical with lots of leaflets and meetings and not so veiled threats. The Woodward and Lothhor workers did have a harder time getting a contract now remember these workers are spread out over maryland d c and Virginia, right so some of those states the virginia is is quote right to work right and so uh Woody's does not want to Uh, They don't want for anybody to to have to be a a member of the union. They want everybody to be right to work. And so there's the right to work committee actually gets involved in this and basically uh, urges Woody's to make sure, you know, that all the workers, even in Maryland and D.C., uh, have a clause in their contract where they don't have to be union members. And in fact, what happens is that the existing workers are grandfathered in, uh, and so that they uh, don't have to become members of unions or pay the equivalent in dues. Um, And what that means uh, is that, uh, especially in Virginia, that the union never really grows as strong as as it might. And in some ways, I find that as a Sort of um, in a nutshell, (laughs) a lot of what happens to to unions in the South. Uh, You can see that playing out at Woodward and Lothrop. Um, But nevertheless, The department store industry starts to change a lot in the 1990s. There's tons of consolidation uh, in in the 1990s. Um, And what these workers, because they had a union and because they had a union contract, they're actually able to hold on to their union. There's a bidding war between May uh, Company and Federated. The union inserts itself in the middle of this as a potential buyer. By doing that, they basically put themselves at the table. They have no intention of buying this company. There's no way they could buy it, but it it gives them leverage. And basically, they managed to get May Company to not only recognize the union, but also to remain neutral for unionization efforts among other local workers, like those workers at Hacks who had tried to organize and faced the anti-union employer. And eventually, they do uh, they these workers are able to come into the to the union. Eventually Federated then buys May and the whole thing is now called Macy's. Those workers in Washington DC who work at Macy's still have a union contract and it's because of this fight that happened in nineteen seventy nine at Woodward and Lothrop.
0: And that is remarkable and good news. The, the the bad news though is that the transformation of the industry, I'm guessing, means there are far fewer department store workers in the D.C. area today than there were 30 years ago. And um, the, you know, the department store industry, not as doomed as the textile industry, but pretty doomed and replaced, supplanted in large part by things like Amazon, which have so far been utterly immune right. to,
1: to well, unionization. First, first, first replaced in many ways by Walmart. Walmart, yes. it took a while for <laughs> Walmart to come into the D.C. market, although they're finally there now. Right. But then absolutely by Amazon and, you know, Amazon could choose the high road. But so far, Amazon is absolutely not choosing the high road and they are fighting their workers' efforts to form unions left and right. Um, and, you know, what's interesting is that this is becoming a global fight. And so you see, for instance, in Germany, there's real pockets of resistance to the kind of uh, low road. Uh, labor practices that they're trying to push forward, um, but that that those Amazon workers and the those warehouse workers and the ports workers who support them—they are on the front lines of the the fights for the and the labor movement right now. I think.
0: Hey, this is Dan Denver, your host. We started this show as an experiment in late 2016, after Trump had been elected president and I had been laid off. And it worked. It turns out that thousands of people find our in-depth analysis of capitalism, patriarchy, and racism, immigration, politics, mass incarceration, and the drug war, useful in their struggles to transform our dystopian world into something better. We can only do this show with listener support, which means your support. So please join the hundreds of listeners who have already done so, and make a contribution at patreon.com slash thedig. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. It'll only take a sec. Thanks, and back to the show. As the industrial economy is going into crisis and decline in the U.S., there is the rise of the service economy, and one big piece of that that um, is our office workers. And you write about 9 to 5, which is this really important and maybe the least forgotten part of the of, of the stories that you tell. Uh, and it's an effort to organize women office workers that began in Boston, which you describe as the founding mothers of what is today called alt-labor. And it emerged at a moment when, as co-founder Karen Nussbaum movingly put it, I realized that there was this power in the ideas of women's liberation which could be exercised against the authority of the boss, lay out the context within which 9to5 emerged, what they won, and where they finally fell
1: short. You know, it's funny. When I was describing this chapter to... uh, to someone as I was as I was writing the book, they said, Oh, well everything fits but that last one. Like maybe you should just have that be a separate one. And I was really adamant that I was going to tell the story of nine to five. Um, because basically even though these women uh organized an association that was not a union which is why this person was saying it didn't fit and then they also formed a union but in many ways this story to me is one of the most salient because it these women were experimenting with pathways to power uh, that I think are extremely relevant for our economy today so let me just tell you a little bit about what happened there so there's this there was a group of women clericals in boston who used the ideas and the organizing forms of the women's movement to uh take on the unfair treatment for for women office workers uh in in Boston, you know, the way that um companies didn't see women in the mainstream of the workforce. They often thought they were just working for pen money. Women were expected to get the coffee. They were uh, seen as objects, sort of the office wives. So these women took on uh, took on the whole gamut. They wanted respect and they wanted higher pay. And these were very linked for them. Um, so... The, the first thing they did is they built a new kind of worker, ex, a worker group. It was explicitly not a union. It was an association, um, what they called an organization for women office workers in Boston. Uh, and using public pressure, media outreach, strategic affirmative action suits, they basically helped these women win more power uh, in Boston. And they basically bypassed the broken National Labor Relations Board election system that I've been describing to you, right? Um, And that's why I do call them the foremothers of alt labor because today we have all kinds of organizations, worker organizations that are trying to organize outside the broken labor board paradigm. Um, day laborers fight from the fight day for laborers. 15. The Rock United. A lot of them were featured in the Golden Globes on Sunday night. Right? We had the yeah. National Domestic Workers Alliance, the Restaurant Opportunity Center United. I think Jobs with Justice was there. There's all kinds of groups that are that are trying to organize. Um, That we we might call alt labor. Now, eventually, though, these women did also form a union. They they basically interviewed unions, literally knocked on their doors, (laughs) and interviewed a bunch of them, and decided to go with SEIU because SEIU was willing to let them form their own local uh their own national um their own well at first it was a local in Boston and eventually they had a national one. Um
0: local nine two five local
1: nine two five the numbers nine two five whereas the organization was the was the number nine, the word two oh and five. <laughs> so <T-O. laughs> they're very similar. Um but what was so interesting about this dual structure is it allowed them to use both the women's association uh, and and its possibilities in tandem with labor law. So they are literally sort of using the women's movement and the old New Deal labor law in tandem, together working whichever one works for them at various times. Um, and uh, you know, there were times, in fact, that the association often was able to win more than the union did. So they actually, for instance, at John Hancock Insurance Company, they uh, picketed and, and did uh, surveys and, and organized and basically got the company to give them wage increases, job progressions, even child care uh, and they were able to win more than the women were winning on the union side <laughs> uh, and I think this these this is an interesting model for labor today, which is really struggling with um, how to with labor law being broken, but also the fact that our economy has changed so much that so few people are even covered by labor law, right Most of the growth in our economy today is uh in Contingent jobs or gig economy jobs, non-traditional jobs, and a lot of these aren't covered by labor law. Um, and and it and provides so some potential.
0: Is, it provides some potential models, but it's also kind of sobering because they just do fail to organize office workers in mass.
1: Okay. Well, here's the thing. I often hear people say, "Well, nine to five was so promising, but it didn't pan out." Here's the thing. If you're if if you're Going to judge their uh, success by how many union members they got at the end of the day, then yeah, it wasn't it wasn't very successful, right? because these office workers are never unionized on a large scale um, they It does very little to deal with the fact that today we are at six point four percent union density in the private sector. They did not rectify that. however, If you understand that it was a very different experience to be a young office worker, a woman in an office in 1967 compared to 1977 or certainly 1987, that is success, right? Because you – women – the standards of, of what you would expect in the office had changed completely. It was a very different experience. You're, you know, you're not, there's just, isn't the level of, um, treating, treating the assistants like the as office wives. So, you know, I I think we have to, and I'm not going to say nine to five, I'm not going to try to argue that they ultimately were fully successful. I'm what I'm arguing is that it was mixed and I think that this is very important for today that we can we have to get out of thinking about the status of today's labor workers movement I, I want to call it the workers movement because I don't just mean unions we have to stop thinking that success is moving that number on private sector union density right why are we letting the People who count union membership in the government. Why are we letting them determine what's, whether our movement is successful or not? Right. When you think about the 6.4 percent private sector union density, who's not counted in that? The fight for 15 workers are not counted in that. All the people pushing for a higher minimum wage all the people who are part of the National Domestic Workers Alliance who are organizing domestic workers' bills of rights, all the workers who are fighting for a fair wage in the restaurant cent- workers' center. Frankly, all, you know, there's lots of working-class activism today in the immigrants' rights movement and the Black workers, the Black Lives Matter movement. None of this...
0: As 9 to 5 reminds us, um, the workers struggling against sexual harassment in the workplace.
1: Me too. The Me Too hashtag, right? And so... You know, ultimately, the we did not build a world in which the women office workers ended up having a traditional union. That is true, but I think that nine to five changed what it was like for workers. They 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 moved the bar forward in many ways and changed that whole experience. Uh, And uh, it's I think it's important for us to define what success is. And not be wedded to these government statistics on on union membership. So, sorry, that might have been a little bit of a tangent. But. No, great
0: great point to make, and uh, I'm going to come back with a, um, cynical, <laughs> um, a, a cynical a cynical a cynical response to it that I want you to argue against. Which is, um, you argue, and I agree with most of this that that there's no natural law that says that that retail and service jobs must be bad jobs. That global interconnectedness must mean class disparity or that broad economic prosperity is doomed to be unattainable today. Um, you note, for example, that in the late 70s, the retail clerks international union represented a quarter of the national grocery market, which I had no clue of. Um, right. And again, I, I think this is a very important point. But my my, 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 my question is still... Does a worker's and a workplace's position in the system of production matter in some way in terms of the collective power they are able to exercise? Like like my, you know, for example, miners throughout history across countries have this history of militancy because they are at this very critical node of of production. Do we have to rethink worker power in this age of post-Fordist? fragmentation, just-in-time production?
1: So there's kind of two questions in here, which is this idea of um, the, whether some jobs are, um, this idea that we have that some jobs are naturally going to be paid less and treated, you know, the workers will be treated more poorly. And then there's also this question of uh, do, do certain workers have more power Within the economy that we're have that is developing today and and they're related, um, but i'll I'll talk about both of those, so you're right. I do say in the book that there's no natural law that retail work or service work has to be bad work. It's all created within capitalism, right? Um, and I remind readers that capitalism itself has various varieties that are determined by the, um, social and political context, you know, so, uh, in the U S retail companies used weak labor law to fight unionizing efforts. Uh, but in other countries, uh, Retail jobs are not as bad as they are here. In Sweden and Denmark, most retail workers have unions because the state strongly backs collective bargaining. And there, workers just haven't seen the same kinds of wage cuts that they've seen here. Um, uh, You know, even in the UK and Australia, which are more like us, uh, workers there have not seen the same kind of sweeping job degradation that that we've seen in retail here. So they're, you know, um, it it a job a job is a job, and it's what it's always a function of capitalism and the and the state and and you know the workers and uh, and 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 so we we have to be able to imagine a world in which whatever job capitalism is dreaming up, right, uh, it doesn't have, there's not a hierarchy and there's there's not a, a certain way that certain jobs necessarily have to be paid less or, or treated worse. But let, well, let me get to your question where you were saying that certain workers within, within the economy today are going to have more power. You know, and I think that's certainly true. Right. Like you you see that workers, as we were discussing before, workers in the chain from the ports to the the trucks, to the distribution centers, right, to the trucks that bring the stuff to people's houses. That is a chain of workers all the way across who do have who do have specific power uh, within uh, our economy today. And, um, you know, they they conceivably would have the power to disrupt uh that chain of getting the goods from where they where they are made to the person at at the other end but you know you got to remember even that could be changing. Manufacturing itself could be changing soon with the advent of you know 3D printing, et cetera, et cetera. A lot of it is not going to be done overseas. It's actually going to be done in the U.S. or even in very small batches.
0: It's all changing.
1: It's all constantly changing. Capitalism is ever changing, ever moving. It, it is <laughs> <And> dynamic. <laughs> it is right, and so um, what I what I'm what I'm trying to do here is just to remind people that the way that workers are treated is a function of, of you know, of the politics, the place, the time, etc. Um, it's I don't think that there's within capitalism, you know, it's going to they're going to pay people the least they can, uh, unless there are rules and uh, worker activism to push back against that
0: was it just an unhappy coincidence that this powerful business onslaught amidst the crisis of the 70s coincided with the mass entry of women and people of color into these theretofore privileged sectors, restricted sectors of the workforce? Or are they related in some way, even if not directly? And what I mean by that is that Did this broader conservative backlash against the women's and civil rights movement and against the anti-Vietnam War movement, this whole kind of nascent conservative backlash helped create a conservative politics and a mass constituency for that politics, which even if it wasn't primarily about attacking labor, facilitated the business attack on labor and the fact that the new face of labor was so much more female and non-white render that labor movement more vulnerable because it was less sympathetic to rightward moving white workers defecting from the new deal coalition
1: so this is a complicated question a couple of thoughts on it one is that as i was researching i was really hoping to find like the quote from an employer of like (laughs) and the reason that we're fighting (laughs) is because all these women and and i never found it i never found like that piece of evidence What I did find was lots of evidence that the business consultants were using this with the employers, you know, and that the employers were very aware that there are lots of women and people of color coming in and that they, you know, that that was absolutely uh, the terrain on which they would fight. One of my favorite examples of this is the American Bankers Association uh, actually after the, there was a movie called The Wilmar Eight, which is about uh, a group of women teller bank tellers in Wilmar, Minnesota, who went on strike. And, uh, you know, it was sort of unheard of for these bank tellers, to, these women bank tellers to strike. But they did. And there's this movie. Well, the American Bankers Association at their big conference uh poured into the showing. They actually had a screening of this movie for the bankers, and they all wanted to see this movie about these tellers who had organized. And, you know, I think a lot of that is because they knew, they knew that they, that, uh, you know, 80% of the tellers in the country are women, that they're paid a lot less than men. Uh, And they were very interested to see this example of these women fighting, fighting back. Now, this question of um, did then did the fact that there are women and people of color were the ones who were organizing, did that mean that there was somehow less um, support uh, in the sort of the larger political um, structure? In some ways, that's the old narrative about unions. It used to be that we would say, well, as women and people of color, especially in the service and coming into service in retail, the unions were coming out of their racist and sexist bias, didn't try to organize. Well, my story is actually they did. They they weren't always perfect at it. They weren't always good at it necessarily. But uh, – you know, for example, at, at the Newport News Shipyard, when these uh, African-American men had started this big organizing campaign, they went
0: to the steel
1: workers organizing director and said, we want to run a campaign. And he was a white guy. He was very dubious. He said, well, first, you have to get 30 percent of people signed up on cards. Well, they did that. They got all those people signed up on cards. And then he said, well, you have to have a meeting of, you know, a thousand people. And they did that. And they basically ended up um, running running the campaign. The The union only sent in like three organizers. In fact, the union at first only sent in two white organizers, and the workers demanded that they send in a black organizer. So then they sent in a black organizer. Now, there were three organizers for 19,000 workers. But the workers went from... Uh, city to city, town to town, where all the workers, they were coming from all these little towns spread out all around Newport News, and they'd have a meeting each night in a different place. And they effectively ended up organizing it. So, you know, in that case, I don't think the steelworkers at first did as much as they could. But once those workers uh, won the election, and once they then went on strike, they they did pour in money, they poured in resources, and they did try to support them. So I think what I'm saying is that it's it's just it's a more complicated story than the one that we've been been given. Um, And how that played out in terms of, you know, the the larger society understanding the workers organizing. um, I don't I don't get into that that much um because i i would
0: argue that the real mo- motor for the political backlash was not like mass anti-labor sentiment by any means in society but but the, the the reagan coalition tapping into um a racist backlash in a lot of ways and labor um gets gets steamrolled as a result of that on uh, in the political sense
1: i mean i think that reagan Yeah, I think he absolutely he's tapping into a racist backlash, backlash against women, too. Uh, But I think there's also there's there's some anti-labor sentiment in that, too. I mean, when you think about what's happening uh, in, in my story, basically the downturn, the period of downturn is from 1982 to 1985. Um, And it's there's a lot happening during that period. But one of the things that happens is that, you know, uh, this is right after it's after Patco. It's after Reagan basically shows that uh, it's okay to to permanently replace strikers. Um, And so, you know, that's a lot of times um, in our public narrative, we start we start the discussion of the employer backlash with Patco. I actually see it as sort of more towards the very end of it. <laughs> I started in the mid-60s and, and see that as as sort of the culmination or, or not the end, but the beginning, end of that phase, right? Because what you see is starting in 1981 through, well, 82 through 85, the number of working workers coming to election plummets started in 1982. By 19, whereas half a million workers had been coming to election through the 1970s, by 1983, it's down to 165,000. It just plummets. And there's a lot of things going on. There was a big recession in the late 70s that was like a bullseye hit on the unionized sectors, on steel, on auto. Those unions lose 40% of their membership in a four-year period, which is stunning. <laughs> You know, and, and so there's, there's a, sort of
0: a downward, a self-reinforcing downward spiral at that point, where the the business assault on unions that you profile in the book finally um, damages unions to the extent that they're no longer able to deliver what they need to deliver to maintain credibility to working people, and thus start losing
1: credibility among them. By the mid 1980s, um, unions. Uh, begin to look around they try to figure out what they can do uh, and they do form what they call a committee on on the future uh, which meets in 83 85 and again in the early 90s um, and they they really, Uh, began to think about associational membership. So rather than having to go through this narrow doorway to vote in a union election and have a collective bargaining agreement, they began to think about, well, what if you could just sign up for union membership? And it wouldn't necessarily mean you'd have the collective bargaining agreement, but we could organize workers' power in new ways. They flirt with that, but then a lot of the unions fear it and scuttle the attempt to basically build associational membership and so they don't do that eventually the AFL-CIO does build something that is associational membership it's called Working America it exists today but they don't do that until 2003 and by that time union membership has plummeted
0: well i want to end where your book ends and unfortunately there's so much we didn't get to discuss even though i've had you on the line forever including why jimmy carter is horrible but um <laughs> So buy this book and then you'll find out why Jimmy Carter is horrible, um, which is this this moment of because your book is so much about making visible all of these the, this late this this forgotten and invisible labor history. And one big piece of that is this mass worker protest that that i would never heard about before. The AFL-CIO's 1981 Solidarity Day March on Washington, um, the largest rally ever in labor history. And this this march is happening at the dawn of the Reagan era. And there are hundreds of thousands of workers demanding a very different future from what they got over the decades that follow. And today, the labor movement is is a shadow of its former self, and that might be putting it generously. And in 2016, Trump swept through its one-time strongholds in the industrial Midwest, and I really like teared up looking at the photos from this march. This sea of this incredibly diverse unionized working class, and I wonder—I mean, th- th- their their dreams obviously didn't come to pass. They 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 turned into a, a, a total nightmare on the labor front. That, the, uh, but but you sitting down to write this book after years working as an organizer and in the labor movement yourself, what, what you hope that readers in the labor movement and out can take from it in terms of thinking about how to build union power more specifically and more broadly worker power in the years to come because I I, I, I cannot see any path to a revival of the The left in this country and of everyday people's fortunes without without a labor movement.
1: So you're right. So many people have not heard about Solidarity Day. September 19th, 1981, uh, the labor movement staged its largest protest in history, Solidarity Day. Um, historians have generally ignored this march. A number of textbooks don't even cover it. So that's, you know, you have good reason for not knowing about it. About 400,000 workers marched in a protest that was comparable to or larger than the 1963 March on Washington. Participants rode in on 3,000 chartered buses. They weren't flying because of the PATCO strike. So there's 3,000 chartered buses, a dozen specially chartered Amtrak trains, and the AFL-CIO subsidized the Metro that day so that uh, people could just ride for free. You know, when I look at the pictures from this day, it is very clear to me that the group was far more diverse than it would have been even 20 years before. The civil rights movement not only transformed America's workplaces, it transformed the labor movement. And it's very clear, uh, you know. Uh, but, of course, the the tide soon turns as we just, d- just discussed. And these workers, their hopes, their demands, their pushback against the Reagan agenda um, ends up, you know, not being able to turn the tide. Uh, but I think it's important. It's very important to remember that people fought and that they stood up. And that is true for really my whole book. Uh, the story that I'm telling is... A story about these women, these people of color, all kinds of workers, young workers, Southerners who pushed, they demanded unions, they organized, they had a different vision of what this evolving economy was going to look like, what uh, the future was going to look like. They had believed that there could be one that was more equitable, in which they would have more power, um, in which working people's issues would be front and center, but they lost this is important for the second thing we are gonna talk about, which is the future of the labor movement. One of the reasons I wrote this book is I want the people who are struggling today, the, the diverse working class, the diverse working people of today, to understand that their predecessors did not just back down. They were, didn't just you know fade out in a sea of apathy. Working people fought and they lost. And that's a very different thing than not fighting at all, um, because when we understand that working people fought, then we understand that working people are part of a long movement uh, and uh, that they are, are are part of a longer struggle and effort. And it continues. That struggle continues.
0: And that they fought the onset of neoliberalism, that it wasn't just greeted with, with, with you know, with, with a shrug. And that now that this that's, neoliberalism is an unprecedented crisis, that's an important lesson.
1: Absolutely. They fought hard in many ways that, honestly, I've only touched the surface. There's lots and lots more for researchers who are interested in looking at private sector union organizing. There's lots that I wasn't even able to cover. Um, And, uh, you know, so uh, I think that's an important thing for for people to recognize. And I do just want to say, you know, I think the future of – I think the future labor movement – is going to be a blend of what we think of as these traditional unions and these other forms of worker organizations that we were discussing before. I think we're in the middle of the creation of a transformed workers movement for the next century. And I, I actually, believe it or not, have a lot of hope and excitement. I think workers still want unions. There's been lots of upsurge in union organizing on college campuses, right, among graduate employees, adjunct food service employees. Um, uh, you know, uh but then there's lots of other organizing too, through these community groups, worker centers, um, fight for fifteen, etc. Um I I think that one of the things we have to deal with that that the new workers' movement is gonna have to deal with brings us back to where we started, which is this um idea of social welfare. Unions had be, had played such a central key role, a key role in upholding the way that the social welfare system was held together in the United States. And so whatever we do building forward, whatever the movement builds, they're basically having to reconstruct the way that the social welfare state works. Um, And maybe it'll end up not being so dependent on employers, which I think would be a good thing. Uh, or I. Maybe, we're, pair. maybe, or, but keep retirement in the mix there. I mean, when I think about social welfare, I don't just think about healthcare. I think about retirement. I think about unemployment insurance. Like, you know, when you're out of work, the whole, the whole gamut. Um, so I think, you know, over the next few decades what we're going to a lot of our central fight is going to be over this new social safety net. And so there's an opportunity for the workers movement to basically fight again and to try to set the terms uh in a way that is more favorable for working people. And even though we are in the moment of Trump and things look really bad, I do find uh a lot of hope in the way in a lot of the the working class activity uh and um the you know the the me too movement the black lives matter movement uh even in the the bernie sanders uh campaign i think was really important too um and so
0: so i think
1: you know that that we are hopefully are at the beginning of building something new and good but it is going to take a lot of struggle uh, and these workers should know that they are part of a long struggle of workers fighting, uh, including in this lost decade of the 1970s.
0: Lane Wyndham, thank you so much.
1: Thank you. it's been It's been a pleasure.
0: Lane Wyndham is the author of Knocking on Labor's Door, Union Organizing in the 1970s, and the Roots of a New Economic Divide, out now from University of North Carolina Press. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said after noting that the workers of the world might consider uniting, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Follow us on Twitter at the Dig Radio, and please find us wherever you get your podcasts, and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, leave us a review. Those reviews help put us in touch with new listeners. What also helps put us in touch with new listeners is you telling your friends about the show, so please do that. We appreciate all propaganda on our behalf. And find us on Patreon.com slash TheDig. And make a contribution. Even a few bucks a month is an enormous help.